In service to our duty to the Constitution and to our country, the House Committee on the Judiciary is introducing two articles of impeachment charging the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, with committing high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Running, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, and KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But again, today you got me, Nicole Sandler of nicolesandler.com, where I host the Nicole Sandler Show. And once again, I apologize for my voice. I am battling a flu, cold thing. But I guess this is better than the sound of chainsaws in the background, which is what the sound is in Brad Friedman's studio this week while they're trimming the trees that are touching the power lines in his backyard. I kid you not. He lives in California where power lines and trees make fires. So it's important they get that done. And well, here I am because, well, there's so much going on that they didn't want to run a best of, and I understand that. So we've got new stuff for you, if you can bear with my voice. Some people actually like it better this way. Anyway, with so much going on, let's launch right into the news, shall we? Today, in service to our duty to the Constitution and to our country, the House Committee on the Judiciary is introducing two articles of impeachment charging the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, with committing high crimes and misdemeanors. Welcome to history. Tuesday morning, House Democrats officially announced two articles of impeachment. House Judiciary Chairman Gerald Nadler continued. The first article is for abuse of power. It is an impeachable offense for the president to exercise the powers of his public office to obtain an improper personal benefit while ignoring or in injuring the national interest. That is exactly what President Trump did when he solicited and pressured Ukraine to interfere in our 2020 presidential election, thus damaging our national security, undermining the integrity of the next election, 
and violating his oath to the American people. Adam Schiff, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, added, We stand here today because the president's continuing abuse of his power has left us no choice. To do nothing would make ourselves complicit in the president's abuse of his high office, the public trust, and our national security. The president's misconduct is as simple and as terrible as this. President Trump solicited a foreign nation, Ukraine, to publicly announce investigations into his opponent and a baseless conspiracy theory promoted by Russia to help his reelection campaign. President Trump abused the power of his office by conditioning two official acts to get Ukraine to help his reelection. The release of hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid that nation desperately needed, and a White House meeting with an ally trying to fend off Russian aggression. In so doing, he undermined our national security and jeopardized the integrity of our next election. And he does so still. The evidence of the president's misconduct is overwhelming and uncontested. And how could it not be when the president's own words on July 25th, I would like you to do us a favor, though, lay so bare his intentions, his willingness to sacrifice the national security for his own personal interests. And when the president got caught, he committed his second impeachable act, obstruction of Congress of the very ability to make sure that no one is above the law, not even the president of the United States. The evidence is every bit as strong that President Trump has obstructed Congress fully, without precedent, and without basis in law. If allowed to stand, it would decimate Congress's ability to conduct oversight of this president or any other in the future, leaving this president and those who follow to be free to be as corrupt, malfeasant, or incompetent as they would like with no prospect of discovery or accountability. The Judiciary Committee is expected to vote on the articles on Thursday. Meanwhile, on the same day Democrats unveil articles of impeachment for abuse of power and obstructing Congress, they're also handing the president his biggest legislative win since his tax scam bill passed in 2017 by making a deal on the USMCA, or NAFTA 2.0, trade deal. Pelosi and a slew of Democrats held a press conference at 10 o'clock Eastern, Tuesday morning, less than an hour after her press conference to announce the articles of impeachment. This is a day we've all been working to uh, and working for on the path to yes. Uh, we were in range for a while, uh, but until we could cross a certain threshold of enforcement for our workers' rights, for environment, and for the prescription drug issue, as you know, they were three of the areas uh, that we had put out there. I want to thank our chairman, Richie Neal, chair of the, the Ways and Means Committee, the eight members of the task force, whom I will acknowledge momentarily by thanking them uh, for their leadership in negotiating on different segments uh, of the legislation. I also want to thank uh, Richard Trumpka, the president of the AFL-CIO. Uh, he was persistent, dissatisfied, uh, knowledgeable, he, he really got us to a place which is a far distance from where we started with the proposal that was given to us. There is no question, of course, 
that this uh, uh, trade agreement is much better than NAFTA. But in terms of our work here, it is infinitely better than what was initially a pope, uh, proposed by the administration. And I credit our chairman, Richie Neal, for helping us navigate all of these places. The unity of our caucus on specific priorities in order to get the job done. And again, the brilliance, brilliance and knowledge of Richard Trumpka as to the ramifications of every uh, provision that was in the legislation. We'll be handing out a memo from the Ways and Means Committee, you may have it, which tell, explains why we are so proud of the distance that we have come from where we started with the administration on this legislation. It's a victory for America's workers. It's one that we take great pride, great pride in advancing. And Trump meets with Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, in the Oval Office. Once again, it's closed to the press. Just another day in America. Of course, we're still reeling from all that happened on Monday. As expected, the Justice Department's inspector general released a report on the origins of the FBI's Russia investigation, but it rejected Trump's claim of a conspiracy against him. The inspector general, Michael Horowitz, reported that investigators found, quote, no documentary or testimonial evidence of anti-Trump bias in the investigation and that there was sufficient evidence to justify launching the inquiry known as Crossfire Hurricane. Horowitz found that officials followed procedures by approaching campaign aides using informants, but also found that investigators committed some serious errors. However, Attorney General William Barr publicly disagreed with the inspector general, saying, quote, The FBI launched an intrusive investigation of a U.S. presidential campaign on the thinnest of suspicions that, in my view, were insufficient to justify the steps taken. Although we expect nothing less from Trump's Roy Cohn, the federal prosecutor working on another investigation into the origins of the probe, John Durham, also weighed in. His statement reads, quote, based on the evidence collected to date and while our investigation is ongoing, last month we advised the inspector general that we do not agree with some of the report's conclusions as to predication and how the FBI case was opened. Hmm. NBC News' Kendallanian Tuesday morning explained why that statement is so troubling. It was bad enough that William Barr weighed in and said he disagreed with the inspector general. We've come to now expect that from the attorney general. But John Durham has a reputation as an independent actor. He was hired by Eric Holder in the Obama administration to investigate the CIA. He's the U.S. attorney in Connecticut, a sitting U.S. prosecutor. And he just weighed in in what looks like a very political way on an investigation that is not over. He said it in his statement. We're still conducting the investigation, but I just wanted you to know I disagree with the inspector general. And I called around to people. No one has ever seen this before, ever. And what possible law wow. enforcement purpose was achieved by him issuing that statement? Nobody I talked to can think of any. It's entirely 
political, and it's predictably being uh, hailed on Fox News and, and by Trump allies. And who knows how long the Durham investigation could last through the election. And so it will have served its purpose because Donald Trump and his allies can say, well, this matter is still under investigation. Durham disagrees. Disregard what the IG said. It's really, really troubling. And no one I've talked to can explain why Durham would have done that. The current director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, sat for a couple of interviews on Monday and said he's accepted the findings of the inspector general report. What's the biggest takeaway and the most important takeaway from the report for you? Well, I think there's a number of takeaways that are important. One, that we fully cooperated with the, this independent review. Two, that we fully accept its findings and recommendations. Uh, three, that the inspector general did not find political bias or improper motivations impacting the opening of the investigation or the decision to use certain investigative tools during the investigations. Including FISA. Including FISA. But that the inspector general did find uh, a number of instances where employees uh, either failed to follow our policies, neglected to exercise appropriate diligence, or in some other way fell short of the standard of conduct and performance that we and that I as director expect of all of our employees. But again, we are and I am ordering 40, over 40 corrective actions to address all of those things uh, in a way that's robust and serious. Uh, and we're determined to learn the lessons from this report and make sure the FBI emerges from this even better and stronger. Ooh, Trump didn't like that. On Tuesday morning, the president tweeted his disagreement with Ray, saying, I don't know what report current director of the FBI Christopher Ray was reading, but it sure wasn't the one given to me. With that kind of attitude, he will never be able to fix the FBI, which is barely broken despite having some of the greatest men and women working there. Do I detect another firing coming? Now, you also may recall that the first time Sergey Lavrov visited Trump in the Oval Office, he had just fired then-FBI Director Jim Comey and bragged that things would be easier now because of that. Of course, the main attraction Monday was the House Judiciary Committee's impeachment hearing in which the Democrats' Intelligence Committee counsel Daniel Goldman laid out the case against Donald Trump. As has been made clear by irrefutable evidence from throughout the government, Russia interfered in the last election in order to help then-candidate Trump. The allegations about Vice President Biden and the 2016 election are patently false. But that did not deter President Trump during his phone call with the Ukrainian president, and it does not appear to deter him today. Just two days ago, President Trump stated publicly that he hopes that his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, will report to the Department of Justice and to Congress the results of Mr. Giuliani's efforts in Ukraine last week to pursue these false allegations meant to tarnish Vice President Biden. President Trump's persistent and continuing effort to coerce a foreign country to help him cheat to win an election is a clear and present danger to our free and fair elections and to our national security. Now, as to those articles of impeachment, it was Tuesday afternoon that the actual text of the articles of impeachment appeared online. You can read them for yourself. They're posted at judiciary.house.gov. And we'll make it really easy for you. I'll post them at bradblog.com as well, along with today's program. 
but I know a lot of people aren't going to take the time to read them, so I thought I'd read it for you. Resolution, impeaching Donald John Trump, President of the United States, for high crimes and misdemeanors. Resolved that Donald J. Trump, President of the United States, is impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, and that the following articles of impeachment be exhibited to the United States Senate. Articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives of the United States of America in the name of itself and of the people of the United States of America against Donald J. Trump, President of the United States of America, in maintenance and support of its impeachment against him for high crimes and misdemeanors. Article 1. Abuse of Power. The Constitution provides that the House of Representatives, quote, shall have the sole power of impeachment and that the president, quote, shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. In his conduct of the office of president of the United States and in violation of his constitutional oath faithfully to execute the office of the president of the United States and to the best of his ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States and in violation of his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, Donald J. Trump has abused the powers of the presidency in that. Using the powers of his high office, President Trump solicited the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, in the 2020 United States presidential election. He did so through a scheme or course of conduct that included soliciting the government of Ukraine to publicly announce investigations that would benefit his reelection, harm the election prospects of a political opponent, and influence the 2020 United States presidential election to his advantage. President Trump also sought to pressure the government of Ukraine to take these steps by conditioning official United States government acts of significant value to Ukraine on its public announcement of the investigations. President Trump engaged in this scheme or course of conduct for corrupt purposes in pursuit of personal political benefit. In doing so, President Trump used the powers of the presidency in a manner that compromised the national security of the United States and undermined the integrity of the United States democratic process. He thus ignored and injured the interests of the nation. President Trump engaged in this scheme or course of conduct through the following means. One, President Trump, acting both directly and through his agents within and outside the United States government, corruptly solicited the government of Ukraine to publicly announce investigations into A, a political opponent, former Vice President Joseph R. Biden Jr., and B, a discredited theory promoted by Russia alleging that Ukraine, rather than Russia, interfered in the 2016 United States presidential election. Two, with the same corrupt motives, President Trump, acting both directly and through his agents within and outside the United States government, conditioned two official acts on the public announcements that he had requested. A, the release of $391 million of United States taxpayer funds that Congress had appropriated on a bipartisan basis for the purpose of providing vital military and security assistance to Ukraine to oppose Russian aggression and which President Donald Trump had ordered suspended, and B, a head of state meeting at the White House, which the president of Ukraine sought to demonstrate continued United States support for the government of Ukraine in the face of Russian aggression. Three, faced with the public revelation of his actions, President Trump ultimately released the military and security assistance to the government of Ukraine, 
but has persisted in openly and corruptly urging and soliciting Ukraine to undertake investigations for his personal political benefit. These actions were consistent with President Trump's previous invitations of foreign interference in United States elections. In all of this, President Trump abused the powers of the presidency by ignoring and injuring national security and other vital national interests to obtain an improper personal political benefit. He has also betrayed the nation by abusing his high office to enlist a foreign power in corrupting democratic elections. Wherefore, President Trump, by such conduct, has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to national security and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office, and has acted in a manner grossly incompatible with self-governance and the rule of law. President Trump thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Article 2 obstruction of Congress. The Constitution provides that the House of Representatives, quote, shall have the sole power of impeachment and that the president shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. In his conduct of the office of President of the United States and in violation of his constitutional oath faithfully to execute the office of President of the United States and to the best of his ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States and in violation of his constitutional duty to take care that laws be faithfully executed, Donald J. Trump has directed the unprecedented categorical and indiscriminate defiance of subpoenas issued by the House of Representatives pursuant to its sole power of impeachment. President Trump has abused the powers of the presidency in a manner offensive to and subversive of the Constitution in that the House of Representatives has engaged in an impeachment inquiry focused on President Trump's corrupt solicitation of the government of Ukraine to interfere in the 2020 United States presidential election. As part of this impeachment inquiry, the committees undertaking the investigation served subpoenas seeking documents and testimony deemed vital to the inquiry from various executive branch agencies and offices and current and former officials. In response, without lawful cause or excuse, President Trump directed executive branch agencies, offices, and officials not to comply with those subpoenas. President Trump thus interposed the powers of the presidency against the lawful subpoenas of the House of Representatives and assumed to himself functions and judgments necessary to the exercise of the sole power of impeachment vested by the Constitution in the House of Representatives. President Trump abused the powers of his high office through the following means. One, directing the White House to defy a lawful subpoena by withholding the production of documents sought therein by committees. Two, directing other executive branch agencies and offices to defy lawful subpoenas and withhold the production of documents and records from the committees, in response to which the Department of State, Office of Management and Budget, Department of Energy, and Department of Defense refused to produce a single document or record. Three, directing current and former executive branch officials not to cooperate with the committees, in response to which nine administration officials defied subpoenas for testimony, namely John Michael Mick Mulvaney, Robert B. Blair, John A. Eisenberg, Michael Ellis, Preston Wells Griffith, Russell T. Vaught, 
Michael Duffy, Brian McCormack, and T. Ulrich Breckbull. These actions were consistent with President Trump's previous efforts to undermine United States government investigations into foreign interference in United States elections. Through these actions, President Trump sought to arrogate himself the right to determine the propriety, scope, and nature of an impeachment inquiry into his own conduct, as well as the unilateral prerogative to deny any and all information to the House of Representatives in the exercise of its sole power of impeachment. In the history of the Republic, no president has ever ordered the complete defiance of an impeachment inquiry or sought to obstruct and impede so comprehensively the ability of the House of Representatives to investigate high crimes and misdemeanors. This abuse of office served to cover up the president's own repeated misconduct and to seize and control the power of impeachment, and thus to nullify a vital constitutional safeguard vested solely in the House of Representatives. In all of this, President Trump has acted in a manner contrary to his trust as president and subversive of constitutional government, to the great prejudice of the cause of law and justice, and to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. Wherefore, President Trump, by such conduct, has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to the Constitution if allowed to remain in office, and has acted in a manner grossly incompatible with self-governance and the rule of law. President Trump thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. And there you have it. The House Judiciary Committee is going to vote on the articles of impeachment on Thursday. Stay tuned. Still to come on today's episode of the broadcast, we've got a new Green News report. And coming up next, we're going to change the subject completely and talk about the Internet. Can't live with it. Can't live without it. Stick around. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. What the public hears over the public airwaves matters. Without an informed electorate, we've got, well, we got what we have right now. We do our best on the broadcast five days a week to balance that with accurate reporting on issues that actually matter. We don't always get it right, but we try like hell to do so. And we do it all independently and without the influence of corporate or political funding. But we can't do it without you. Please don't presume others will step up. We need you to help us keep doing what Desi Doyen and myself try to do every day on the broadcast. Please help us continue to do so by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep the broadcast going and telling the truth over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Don't wait. Please stop by today. Thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com. Once again, sitting in the guest host seat. As I said before, we're going to completely change the subject. Although the Internet is connected to everything, so I suppose if we're talking about politics... We're not really changing the subject, right? On the line with us now is Ramesh Srinivasan. He's a professor of information studies and director of the Digital Cultures Lab at UCLA and the author of a brand new book called Beyond the Valley, How Innovators Around the World Are Overcoming Inequality and Creating the Technologies of Tomorrow. 
you're taking on the internet and at a time when I can't imagine, I was going to say I can't imagine something more important, but <laughs> there is so many things are important right now. Things are crazy in this world. And I think the internet has added to the craziness. I don't even know where to begin with you. Let me start here. And it's, it's sort of an off-base question. What is the internet? How, how do you describe yeah. what this thing is? The internet is a um, great question, Nicole. Thank you. Um, so, so the, um, the internet is far more than um, you know Facebook or Google or mm-hmm. YouTube or even a specific like technology like a like a GPS technology. The internet is the digital expression of our lives and our identities. Um, it is a way in which almost all of our activities, whether they're communication based or they're movement based, whether they're consumption based, um, it's the digital expression of all of those things. So the internet, of course. In its infancy, it just turned 50 years old. Yeah. Um, what is was was a physical infrastructural architecture whereby people could communicate, uh, packet switch, uh, share bits with one another across distance. So that is kind of what the internet was. It was publicly funded, U.S. taxpayer funded, nonprofit initiative. It was about American money that created the backbone of the internet. However, now what the internet has turned into is more or less the vocabulary and the expression of all of our, uh, almost everything we do, um, because almost any activity we engage in as human beings leaves some digital footprint or is monitored by some digital system, most notably our phones. You know, we are almost um, invited this monitoring into our lives by having these phones or having, you know, smart, uh, you know, smart devices, so-called smart devices mm-hmm. near us. So the internet is about the the new the new digital binary integer based language by which human experiences are are described, but also as we're increasingly finding out, human possibilities for people are foreclosed. Meaning, if you are not a privileged subject or person, whether it's geographically, racially, uh, economically, um, you know, um, if you are not or even young in this world, the internet is a force to discriminate against you mm. because the internet, like all technologies, and the internet is the most immersive technology that we've ever created, uh, the internet, like all technologies, ha- is fundamentally dependent on who is monetizing it, who is creating it, and ultimately who has power over it. So that's why in Beyond the Valley, I argue, I describe how we got to this point where there's private, corporate, and, some, and to some extent state-based domination of our digital lives. And I describe what the heck we need to do to kind of balance things out and get back to an Internet that stands for working people, stands for people of color, stands for women, stands for the 99 percent. And how do we get there? That's what I argue. That's what I argue for. And I try to push out in Beyond the Valley. And I'm also influencing um, in part of Senator Sanders' uh, national 2020 campaign, trying to push these ideas out as well. Well, Senator Sanders is a perfect example of the power of the Internet. Um, You know, as a talk show host and somebody who who deals with progressive politics, I've been a fan of Bernie Sanders for many years, long before I've interviewed him for years, long before he ever even thought about running for president. And it was (laughs) the power of the Internet that spread, you know, this old guy from Vermont that most of the nation had never heard of before. And in 2016, um, he caught on and he caught on so big with young people. Is that because of the power of the Internet? 
Yeah, well, the internet can be a force to bring people together. It can also be a force to uh, manipulate and monitor people. <laughs> yeah. It can be a force to it can be a force to inflame and radicalize people. And most uh, on a most foundational level, at least these days, it's a force for economic extraction and manipulation uh, to monitor people so you can you uh, so you can influence their behaviors for your own private, corporate, selfish internet gain. So per the, per the examples of Bernie Sanders and others, you can see how the Internet also can be a force of bringing you know, grassroots people together, bringing the 99% together. Remember in 2016, the average donation was $27, right. right? Which is what happens. The Internet, because it is in everyone's hands and is part of all of our lives, at least in you know, the global north and in the United States especially, um, is a mechanism by which we can choose to contribute or share or volunteer or work together as just individuals, as just normal people, right? So right. this is a very powerful possibility of what the internet can create. And for without doubt, uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign is built upon the internet. Um, it is a powerful campaign in terms of its messaging, in terms of its vision. It speaks to a political environment where you know, we really we realize we need some fundamental changes in this country and around the world. And the and a lot of people feel that way as well. So the Internet can facilitate through this campaign the ability for people to bring their money together and hopefully overwhelm, you know, super PACs and big corporate billionaire donor campaigns. Uh, but the Internet can also be a mechanism of sharing, you know, stories and memes and, and facilitating volunteering. Like, remember the example in 2016 of Birdie Sanders? Oh, yes. You know, the bird <laughs> <laughs> in Portland, Oregon. And I, I tell that story in Beyond the Valley. I tell the story of the Sanders campaign in 2016 and how that is one of many examples of, a, of an Internet that brings people together. Um, we used to use this term, Nicole. I don't know if you remember it. Um, but 10 years ago, crowdsourcing, oh, yeah. you know, uh -huh. and you kind right. of kind of like the crowd comes together. And, and in some ways, that was utopic, because what we didn't realize is as the crowd was coming together, there was an invisible, you know, um, manipulator, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, who was basically manipulating the whole game, which were the big tech companies. However, the crowd can come together, in this case, administered and facilitated by a nonprofit, progressive, people-centered campaign. And that is also possible for the Internet. And that's why I'm not just deriding the Internet as it is um, in Beyond the Valley. I'm also speaking about what we can do about this. I have a piece that will be coming out in the next probably two weeks in The Guardian, which is called Why We Need a Digital Bill of Rights. Uh -huh. you know, so there's a lot we can mm -hmm. do. There's a lot we can do, and it's high time to do it. And I'm sure as heck uh, motivated to make it happen. This is such a huge topic. We're speaking with Ramesh Srinivasan, uh, the author of the new book, Beyond the Valley, dealing with the Internet. And it, it's a big book. And from what I understand from reading it, it started out even yeah. a lot bigger than this. And, um, <laughs> but, but there's so much there. there. Right. Well, but there's there. Yeah. This is huge. And, and when I think back, it's 50 years. But. In reality, it was, you know, the, the early 90s. I remember working, I worked at, you're in Los Angeles, I worked at KLOS. I used yeah. to produce the Mark and Brian show. And actually, the day that I left there in 1994 was the day that our desktop computers arrived. So I did my job there pre-computer, pre-email, pre-all that, the day I left and moved to a, a different station is the day, again, the computers came in. And I realized how much it changed our lives. Yeah, it made things a lot easier. Um, but 
maybe it fed into, and I'm, I'm stereotyping here, but the lazy American. Um, I look back on the 70s, the 60s and the 70s. People protested. We were out in the streets. Um, now it seems like so many people think that they can go online and sign a petition and post a couple of things on Facebook, and they've done their civic duty. Um, I'm, I wonder often why more Americans aren't out in the streets protesting Donald Trump. Uh, we should be out in the streets over this impeachment. And we don't. I, I don't. Yeah. Do you think the Internet has added to that, has, has made us lazier and more apathetic? Well, I think that's, it's, uh, it's such a good question, Nicole. I mean, you know, there's this term that we use in academia. We call it slacktivism, where you're uh-huh. kind of like, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, or clicktivism. Yes. Another term is clicktivism. Yep. You're kind of a slacker. You're kind of like chilling out on your phone, and you think that that is the same as political participation, but in reality, it's actually detaching you, especially yeah. if what you're, if, especially if what you're participating in, and this is a key point, are platforms, meaning meaning uh, services, technology uh, services like Facebook, which we know are not actually mechanisms of reaching the wider public because the information that comes to us on Facebook is designed by Facebook's computational systems to just release more dopamine in our brains and make us more enraged or more inflamed. Uh-huh. So it's really us it's really like a hidden veil of political participation. So I've actually for many years, Nicole, looked at this very question of uh, what political mobilization or collective action looks like and how we can understand uh, the role of the internet and new technologies in collective action. And what I've found is that, yes, there is a place for using digital technologies. Um, as, as we described with Senator Sanders' campaign, we saw examples of this with Occupy uh, mm-hmm. back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, spreading information, uh, do- video documentation, um, you know, bringing, pooling resources together, uh, you know, those things can be very valuable, all right? Like Black Lives Matter has, you know, leaders have told me multiple times that's very helpful for them to use the Internet to document the abuses sure. uh, that that community continues to face at the hands of uh, injustice and, and the police, of course. Um, so, so the Internet can be a mechanism of spreading information and so on. But that is not all. Uh, that is not the start and end, as you know of what political participation is or political movements are. You also have to do other things. You also have to organize on other levels, uh, including putting your body in harm's way. That's right. Including, um, you know, including uh, physical mobilization, including other sorts of media tactics. So, you know, for three years, and this is a different part of the world, but for three years, every summer, um, for three months almost every year, I was in Tahrir Square and in Egypt. Between mm-hmm. 2011 and 2013, writing mm. for Al Jazeera a little bit, but as a professor, writing about what was going on. And what I realized there is that the blind and naive use of the internet or social media by activists was going to do nothing for them. But the tactical use of technology made a huge difference. So, what they were doing there is they were figuring out how they could take the things, the videos they were capturing of the abuses or information they wanted to share and get it to the right people on Twitter, not so they could just keep putting it up on Twitter, but then they would use what they learned. These people who would receive the information on Twitter would then broadcast it on television, which everybody had access to in right. Egypt at the time, and no one almost had access to social media. So people were using digital technologies and technologies of all kinds in tactical ways, recognizing the possibilities and the constraints of the environment within which they were located. 
Um, so, you know, in the United States, um, you know, we are uh, overwhelmed by the trauma, uh, obviously, of this administration. Uh, we are overwhelmed by the fact that the messaging of this administration, specifically from our president, works perfectly well with the way social media function, because social media like to privilege and make visible the spectacular and the inflammatory and at times the hateful and certainly at times um, the, uh, the, the manipulative and untrue and the so-called fake information, disinformation. Oh, it, so so it, that's a real problem. It, the Internet, as it currently is manifested, can divide and conquer us, can be the antithesis to democracy. Uh, but the Internet can also bring us together. Right. That's the the weird thing about it. And I don't know that we can say that about any other entity in our world, that, that there's really good aspects of it and really horrible aspects of it, uh, things that can make the world so much better and things that can drive us to war, uh, to, to can destroy lives. Yeah. Um, we saw with yeah, Katie and, Hill, and right, the, how the Internet destroyed yeah. her life. Um, uh, who, the, the, the Congresswoman yeah. from uh, uh, California who had to resign after right her here. ex-husband, right, uh, went on a revenge porn yeah. uh, rampage on her. Um, so, so it's harnessing this in a way. Um, you know, I remember we had fights for years over net neutrality. Right now, I don't know. I don't know what the status is now. Um, obviously, I want the, the internet to be neutral. I earn my living by doing a show, and if someone, if they can come along and regulate it and put me in a slow lane because I can't afford to pay as much as Comcast can to get my message out there, well, that will hurt me. But by the same token, um, InfoWars spread their propaganda yeah. using the Internet. Yeah. So it, it, it's, uh, I guess it's, is it true democracy? Is it, I don't know what it is. But so I, what, we, don't, we only have a limited amount of time today, and I'm obviously hoping we can continue this conversation as we go on because this is a fascinating Absolutely. topic. But I do want to I ask about <laughs> your, your digital bill of rights. So what, what are yeah. you calling yeah. for here? How would this help? Thank you. That's a perfect way to end it. And I also do want to just mention that my friend Cenk Uger ah. from the Young Turks, who I work with, uh -huh. is is running for Katie's seat. And, yes, and the is. Young Turks really elevated and, and blew up internet. thanks to the Internet. Absolutely. Um, Hopefully Cenk sure is going to... them, too. I'm waiting for um, yeah. a confirmation to have Cenk on the show, hopefully later this week or next week. So That's cool. Tell yeah. him I said hello. We'll do. <laughs> um, so, will. yeah, the Digital Bill of Rights is basically trying to get to an internet that balances. Uh, sure, businesses can exist and profit off of some aspects of internet and digital experience, but it can't come in the current form that it is where it leaves everybody else out, where it's zero sum. We need an internet that lifts everybody's lives up. So what am I asking for? Many different elements, and it's all gonna be out next week. First of all, wow. uh, every citizen needs to know what data is being collected about them. There yes. needs to be disclosure. Number two, Every citizen should own their own data, meaning if I choose to not use the services of a given vendor like Facebook or even a particular credit card company, they must destroy my data that mm. they have on me. Mm -hmm. Third of all, we need to know what data is known about us that influences what we see. That is very important because, you know, you and I could be sitting next to each other, both on a Facebook or Instagram feed. And we might even be politically similar, as I, as I, I guess we are. Mm -hmm. I can tell we are. <laughs> yes, we and are. we could have very different experiences. We could have content fed to us based on an assessment and an evaluation of our own psychology based on the idea of manipulating us. So that no longer can exist. 
Another thing, we need to regulate and, and possibly ban all data brokers, which are companies, shady third parties that sell and profit off of our personal data. Mm. Also, every AI automation gig economy system needs to be regulated to ensure that it functions for working people and the 99%. Imagine an Uber, or at least partial equity of Uber, was, uh, was in the hands of its workers and drivers. Yeah. So rather than seeing its workers as drivers, as exploited people who are not even employees of Uber, who are not provided with a living wage, who are not provided with health care benefits, what if they were partially the owners of the business itself? Right. We can have the efficiency and beauty and network capacity of digital technologies without displacing and disenfranchising people. Those are just some elements to this all. We also need to make sure that every algorithmic system needs that there has to be governance of it to ensure that hateful content does not become the new normal on it. And I ask questions in the book in Beyond the Valley, like, you know, if Facebook has a new type of news feed to push journalistic content out, as it announced recently, or if uh, predictive policing systems, which I don't really believe in, are to be the new norm, who gets to have power over the design and auditing of those systems? Shouldn't Black Lives Matter be partially involved in the design of a policing system, mm -hmm. given that they're stakeholders? Shouldn't journalists like yourself be part of the design of the Facebook news system? Instead, what we see is these technologists saying, leave us alone. We're going to keep making money and manipulate you all we want. We'll throw you a few bones when we feel like we'll just develop better AI. And yeah, we'll, you know, kind of do this all in house. That is what we have heard the same narrative again and again and again from Mark Zuckerberg and all these big technologists. And it's now time if they profit off of the public, if they profit off our content, if they profit off our labor, all the while leaving us in the dark, manipulating us, they are now going to be forced by this Bill of Rights to be socially accountable. And that is why I'm calling for this. Um, it's gonna, I, I'm calling for it as a legislative push, but it's more than anything a movement. And it needs to happen now. Because right. It's going it, to get worse and worse with 2020 around the corner. Uh, all these issues like Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and mm -hmm. Russian manipulation, they are just they are as open as ever. Nothing has changed, Nicole. I'm telling you, that's why we got to do something about it now. Right. And, and, and the, the, I think one of the conundrums here has to do with the fact that this is a global issue. When you're talking about a legislative fix, we have a hard enough time getting anything through Congress here in the U.S., and that just affects the United States. But uh, the Internet is global. And so when you're talking, how do you wrangle the entire yeah. world to abide by the, a digital bill of rights? That, that's a, an additional challenge that I don't know that anyone has yeah. grappled with. Yeah, there are gross injustices uh, on a global level. You know, we see the complicity of WhatsApp and Facebook in mass genocides in Myanmar um, with manipulated by uh, brutal uh, killer authoritarians like uh, Rodrigo Duterte, uh, ultra racist nationalists like um, like uh, what's his name, Jair Bolsonaro uh -huh, in Brazil. Brazil. It's a manipulative thing. So what what these tech companies have to do yet again, because they primarily remember the vast majority of users of Google, Facebook, etc. products services are not in the U.S. They're actually in Asia, Africa, uh -huh. South America, and so on. So these companies are profiting off of these people's mm. uh, participation in their content. So they also, what these companies need to do is develop partnerships with legitimate civil society and human rights organizations to make sure that their technologies are governed in ways where it supports the interests of the people and those places. Because otherwise, what you see are the racial and gendered and colonial, honestly, and, and massive multinational capitalist extractive biases 
of, of uh, you know, tech bazillionaires in one part of the world creating all sorts of hell for everybody else. And um, that is totally inappropriate. And it's, and, it's, and it's embarrassing, honestly, for these companies as well. They don't want the bad PR. So I'm asking them to, be, um, to give up some power collaborate, actually collaborate. Don't use, don't, don't drop it in as silly, you know, buzz language, actually collaborate, actually give up power, believe in other people. Don't think because you're an engineer who's not trained deeply in global studies and anthropology that you know better because you don't. When you're an engineer, you don't learn any of these things. I'm a trained engineer and I had to learn all these things after my engineering. Hmm. Yeah. And, and again, I, I keep going back in my head to the uh, toothpaste in the tube analogy. It's out. Can we get it back in? Can we wrangle this thing, this mo- that this thing that we're all so dependent on now? Um, I, 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 I honestly don't know. Have you gotten any feedback from the big tech companies on the idea? <laughs> um, I'm sometimes I'm, I'm sometimes on panels uh, like I was on one at the Aspen Ideas Festival uh-huh. and I was on another one you know these kind of like fancy festivals Chicago Ideas right. Festival with uh, very nice people you know remember I'm not trying to call anyone out as a sure. person right? right I I went to Stanford and MIT my I have friends who are very high up in these companies and made a lot of money out of it and I know that they like me were largely uh, ignorant, not because they're bad people, but because of the way we were trained on these deeply ethical and social issues. So I am hopeful that, uh, if you will, the more conservative elements of my Bill of Rights, um, and you know, which Ro Khanna has also called for a digital Bill of Rights uh-huh. in his own right, national co-chair of Bernie's campaign, sure. you know, Love others too. Um, so, so like, you know, I am hopeful that, uh, that, that, that some aspects of this in goodwill they can actually start to work on, like disclosure, like accountability, you know, like data ownership. You know, Mark Zuckerberg likes to say that we own our own data, but that's just not true. It's not true if they keep our data after we die, if they gather our data, even if we never created a Facebook account. It's just not true. So I am going to ask, I'm going to see where, what the response will be. I'm willing to talk to and work with anybody. Uh, there are good people in all these companies. And, um, and I ask them to even challenge whether they can maximize their bottom line while doing things a little more ethically. Why don't we test that out? You know, companies like to do this thing called A-B testing, where they try one you know, approach with some group of people and try another group, another approach with another randomized group of people. And they analyze, you know, what the outcome is on the on their profitability or on their user engagement is the term they use. Um, So, you know, let's see what works, because, you know, as human beings, we do like our vegetables and fruits. We also like, you know, our Doritos and (laughs) Coca-Cola, but uh, but we also like our vegetables and fruits. Mm -hmm. So, like, let's let's try. You know, we also like we love hate. But we also love love. And actually, at the end of the day, loving love makes us feel better than loving hate. Yes, it does. <laughs> you know? Yes, it does. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Ramesh Srinivasan, th- I, I, we could talk for hours. Um, this is such a fascinating topic because it is what our lives are today. And we're navigating this new frontier um, in in every possible way. Uh, and, and we don't seem to be doing a great job of it on many fronts. So thank you for tackling this huge subject. The book is Beyond the Valley, How Innovators Around the World Are Overcoming Inequality and Creating the Technologies of Tomorrow. We've barely, barely scratched the surface of what you get into in this book. So I do look forward to continuing the conversation. It's so great to meet you. Oh, I'm honored. And let's make a date to do that right now. Up next... Desi Doyen 
and the Green News Report. I'm Nicole Sandler filling in for Brad on the broadcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler in for Brad and Desi. And although they're not here today, they did leave us with a new Green News report. Three bushfires burning north of Sydney have joined to create what's been dubbed a mega blaze. New heat wave exacerbates Australia's bushfires now raging out of control. The world's oceans are struggling to breathe. Oceans losing oxygen thanks to man-made global warming. Plus, we would love some action from, from the people in power. Young activists pressure UN Climate Summit to get moving. All of that pressure and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. People are flushing toilets ten times, fifteen times, as opposed to once. No, no they're not. You're just making that up. This is your Green News Report. You and your toilet must really be full of sh- Okay, Desi Doyen, what the hell is Donald Trump talking about with the flushing the toilets 10, 15 times? Oh, Trump is now going after water efficiency rules that save consumers money. Trump falsely claimed last week that he ordered a federal review of water efficiency standards for bathroom fixtures. But in reality, it was the Republican-controlled Congress back in 2018 that mandated that the EPA review all regulations implemented by the Obama administration prior to 2012. So this was meant to save water, these low-flow toilets, and now he's claiming it's using up more water. And he's wrong about that. What a surprise. EPA data says that updated water efficiency standards actually save the average family nearly $400 in water costs every single year. Oh, well, we need to stop that right away. In eastern Australia, more than 100 out-of-control fires continue to rage amid a prolonged severe drought and yet another heat wave. Air quality has reached hazardous levels in Sydney, where over the weekend, three Three major fires joined together to create a mega blaze stretching more than 37 square miles. Mm. The heavy smoke closed ferry service in Sydney Harbour and is so bad it even set off smoke alarms at the University of New South Wales. Rural Fire Commissioner Shane Fitzsimmons warned residents that the fire situation is going to get worse before it gets better. We've got a significant number of fires uh, which are which are joining together and will continue likely to join together over the coming days and weeks uh, given the given the access, the terrain uh, and the volatility of fire behaviour and how quickly uh, these fires are spreading. I'll tell you what, for the last, I don't know, three, four, five years, every December, 
it seems like we get this same story out of Australia. Yep, and worse, the smoke and soot from Australia's fires are turning New Zealand's glaciers pink 1,200 miles away. Of course, that deadly volcano in New Zealand isn't doing much either for soot around that country. It certainly isn't. In California, bankrupt utility Pacific Gas and Electric has agreed to pay $13.5 billion to settle claims arising from the deadly 2017 Wine Country fires and the 2018 campfire that killed 85 people in the town of Paradise. Did you say 13 billion? Yes. PG&E admits those fires were caused by its failure to maintain its equipment. If approved, that $13 billion settlement with victims would be in addition to a previous $1 billion settlement with cities and an additional $11 billion settlement with insurance carriers. That company is already in bankruptcy. Now is the time for California to buy it up, I say. Meanwhile, a new study warns that oxygen levels are falling in the world's oceans. Warmer seawater holds less oxygen, and the researchers calculated that 50% of the oxygen loss in the upper part of the ocean since 1950 is a result of man-made global warming. The rest is caused by nutrient runoff from agriculture and industry. The loss of oxygen has a wide range of consequences for marine biodiversity, and it affects the everyday functions of ocean ecosystems. Which means that fish and other wildlife in the oceans die for lack of oxygen. Right. In Madrid, Spain, inside this year's annual United Nations Climate Summit to negotiate the Paris Climate Agreement, world governments are deadlocked on a number of measures, including an attempt to create a global carbon pricing mechanism. Outside the conference, tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets, demanding that negotiators do more in a Friday school strike for climate led by teen climate activist Greta Thunberg. In a press conference, Thunberg and the other youth climate leaders excoriated world leaders for not moving fast enough, even as climate scientists' warnings become increasingly dire. The climate crisis is still being ignored by those in power, and we cannot go on like this. It is not a sustainable solution that children skip school. We cannot go on like that. We don't want to continue, so we would love some action from from the people in power. Yeah, but we need you to continue, Greta. You and all of the thousands of students out there, please keep up the pressure. No pressure, but you're our only hope. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. Thanks for bearing with me and my voice. Hopefully, Brad and Desi will be back soon. In the meantime, thank you for listening. And as Brad always says, good luck, world.